So we're going to start this episode with a little exercise. What's the name of the city or town or country that you're living in right now? Do you know where that name comes from? Do you know how long it's been known by that name? Or if it's had any other names? To try to deepen our knowledge of the names that surround us, my producer Karina and I took the two parts of the name British Columbia, the name of the province in which we both currently live, and researched where exactly this name comes from. Okay, Rye, where does the Columbia in British Columbia come from? So in order to understand Columbia, we have to go all the way back to Christopher Columbus. Does horrible things and kickstarts this process of violent colonization of the Americas. Some years later, the superpowers of the world at the time, Britain, France, uh, the United States, Spain, are sending ships all over the world, including to territories here on the west coast of what's today known as Canada. They're claiming territories that, of course, aren't rightfully theirs. One of those ships that arrives is this ship called the Columbia Redivia, which, if my Latin checks out, I believe means Columbus Reborn. This ship is captained by an American captain, Captain Robert Gray, and he's actually the first European to overwinter on the west side of Canada in a place that today is known as Adventure Cove. On his way out, after having established some relations with New Channel people, and specifically community members from Opitzit, he decides to completely destroy the village of Opitzit and did it in such a horrific manner, even his own shipmates that were recording the logs of the ship said that what happened was inappropriate. So Captain Robert Gray sails out of there. He travels north. He kills a very significant number of people on Haida Gwaii. He kills people on the north end of Vancouver Island. Then he sails south and he kills other people um, in territories now known as the United States and continues further south and sails into the mouth of the river now known today as the Columbia River, but then hadn't been named by Europeans. It was his presence on that river and the fact that he sailed in on the ship called the Columbus Reborn, the Columbus Redivia, that is where that river got its name that we know today. It was named after his ship. Subsequent to that, Hudson's Bay Company comes along, sets up an entire district. This concept of Columbia ends up being anchored on maps. And then, you're going to tell us, we see Britain really begin to expand its control over these territories, largely out of fear. Yes. British Columbia, as a name, was chosen by Queen Victoria um, in a letter on July 24th in 1858. Um, and the British colonial secretary, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, had written to her asking her to choose a new name for the province because at some point it began being called New Caledonia, but that was a name that was being used elsewhere by the French. Um, and so in a letter, it's only a page and a half, four sentences long, um, and the final sentence reads, The only name which is given to the whole territory and every map the Queen has consulted is Columbia. But as there exists also a Colombia in South America, and the citizens of the United States call their country also Colombia, at least in poetry, British Columbia might be, in the Queen's opinion, the best name. But also the naming of the province was a really integral part of the process that established direct British control over the territory because it wasn't just happening spontaneously on its own. In 1858, there's the discovery of gold in the province. 
which leads to an influx of immigrants and settlers converging in the region. And the British become worried that they're going to lose control over the territory to Americans. And so they decide that this territory has to come under direct British control. And then on August 2nd, 1858, the Act to Provide for the Government of British Columbia passes. And it states, whereas diverse of Her Majesty's subjects and others have, by the license and consent of Her Majesty, resorted and settled on certain wild and unoccupied territories on the northwest coast of North America, commonly known as the designation of New Caledonia, and from and after the passing of this act to be named British Columbia, it is desirable to make some temporary provision for the civil government of such territories until permanent settlements shall be thereupon established and the number of colonists increased. So I just think it's so essential that we understand that the name was part of the process of establishing colonial control over this territory. It was not separate. It was such an important way that the British government legitimized its illegitimate claim over stolen land. In addition to everything that you've just said, with British control being asserted, you actually see in the colonial record orders then being sent to then-Governor James Douglas here to proclaim British law into force. And he essentially just reads this public declaration out loud one day saying that now British law is in force, which is also a bewildering concept in many ways. This one-two punch that is rooted first in the necessary belief, not the truth, but the belief that there's no other systems of law in these territories. And then two, just the pulling out of thin air, the exertion or presence of, of British common law in these territories. And that remains the very foundation and basis of all of our systems in this province and really in this country today. This episode, we're looking at names across this country, the names of places, of people, and of individuals, and what truths about our history they reveal or obscure. We're talking with Daryl Kootenay about what's behind so many of the colonial place names in Alberta. It really started to paint a clear picture that the people that came here named these places after themselves. And Heather Gloliorti about the Canadian government's systematic erasure of Inuit names in the 20th century. E-tag system that lots and lots of people didn't know about, really dehumanizing a tag identification system that was imposed upon Inuit for decades. Before hearing from Lawrence Hill and Robina Thomas about the deep connections between history and identity. There was a willful attempt to exterminate a history and a memory and a possibility of even knowing. When you take away our names and you take away the opportunities to share those stories, you take away all of the responsibility that those names carry as well. My name is Rai Moran. This is Tapwewin, talking about what we know and what we believe. A podcast from the territories of the Lekwungen people and the libraries and archives of the University of Victoria. Many of the names that adorn much of our landscape are direct markers of the history of settlement and dispossession that created modern Canada. In this valley, like just the names, like you're talking about Bam, Camor, you know, C.V., Exhaw, uh, Morley, Sibold. These are all names that are actual places in like Scotland and Europe. To better understand the complex history of place names, we talked with Daryl Kootenay, who is an incredible singer, dancer, artist and speaker that I got to know through our work at the Banff Centre. I have my traditional 
names that were given to me, um, Tatanko Wagichi and uh, Wacha Toganaki Kansha. Tatanko Wagichi means dancing buffalo. Um, and that was the name that belonged to my great grandpa. Um, and it was a name that carried him through his teen years. And that name was transferred to me, uh, I think when I was 10 years old. It's been with me ever since. The other name was Wacha Toganaki Kansha, which is Lakota from my adopted family in Rosebud, South Dakota. There's Sinchangu. And uh, the name translates uh, the one that leads with his heart. And so that was uh, a part of a hunka, making a relative ceremony with my family. Uh, my English name is Daryl Kootenay. And uh, I'm half um, Navajo on my late father's side from New Mexico, uh, Dene people. And then uh, born and raised, though, here in the Rocky Mountains, a part of my late mother's side of the Nakota people. Throughout the Bow Valley in Alberta, there are countless names that bear direct ties to the history of colonization of these lands. The name Banff, for example, is derived from Banffshire, Scotland, the homeland of one of the first directors of the Canadian Pacific Railway. And uh, when I started to understand those names, it really started to paint a clear picture that the people that came here name these places after themselves uh, are places that they're familiar to in a different country and a different continent of a different land and really brings the reality of how much that conquer and pioneer perspective was um, being supported but also you know is really being influenced during that time and where were the indigenous peoples we were being forced into reservations we were being forced into hard labor of clear-cutting the, the way for the Sitra Railway, you know, clear cutting where these towns are now today, all the ski hills, hiking trails, uh, my community were part of guiding, but also the hard, intense labor of making these towns what they are today. The act of naming something after a person can be a sign of respect and reverence. But many of the names across this country that currently decorate everything from our streets to our schools unquestioningly honor deeply troubling colonial figures. The two names that always get me, and I still say it today, is Morley. And Morley is a priest that was a part of the residential school. And when he passed away, the McDougal brothers decided to name this place after him, which is now, I've grown up saying I'm from Morley, saying I'm from this priest. And it was just really recently, in the last year or two, that we finally changed the name to Minithmi. And how much that's been embedded into me is like, I still see I'm from Morley today. The practice of renaming a place denies the existence of indigenous names and finding its root in harmful concepts such as terra nullius acts as an extension of the refusal to recognize indigenous presence and rights. More broadly, the act of naming things after individuals appears to be seldom represented in the names traditionally assigned by indigenous peoples. And it just, it's still, it's still hitting me, you know? There's all these names in Calgary, in Cochrane, Morley, Banff, uh, Canmore, played a role in history in some way that was also at the reality of, um, you know, violations and, and, you know, the human violations and the, you know, the, the true uh, essence of how much genocide and this way of, of marginalization was, was Truly real, and they were oblivious to it. And that's what that's because we're human beings, and it always gets me on how people can do that while well, knowing that. 
Sometimes these colonial names also took the form of horribly racist terms. In the Bow Valley, Ha Ling Peak was renamed in 1997, successfully removing its previously racist name. And until 2020, another mountain peak in the Canmore area bore a highly racist and misogynistic name for Indigenous women. Having this kind of language scattered in maps, hiking guides, and blogs only extends and normalizes violence towards Indigenous women. But in September of 2020, after persistent campaigning by local judge Jude Daniels and the Stony Nakoda people, the mountain peak was renamed. At the ceremony, in the shadow of the mountain, Stony Nakoda elder Una Wesley proudly announced, Today, I declare that mountain be named Anonkasan Impa. In English, it's Bald Eagle Peak. Led by indigenous activists and communities, there's been a steady push across this country to remove both colonial place names and to restore indigenous place names. Being able to rename it was really, really empowering and seeing our elders spearhead that along with some allies in the valley you know, really brought a good understanding and essence of truth and reconciliation as well. The Indigenous place names that have existed for millennia are important signs of a deep connection to these lands. You know, the, the Bow Valley and Banff, and particularly, you know, in our language, we said Minakba. And there's many different stories about the place that people know as Banff now. And I've heard the story of Minakba, uh, which means waterfall in our language. But I've also heard community members and elders talk about how it's not just that waterfall, but it's referring to all the other waterfalls um, that the mountains create, uh, especially during, you know, the springtime when the snow uh, melts and starts to create the downstreams from the tops of the mountains uh, down into the land. That whole cycle there is the essence of, of Minihba as well. You know, these cycles, uh, natural law, spiritual law, um, that we, you know, many ways are forgetting. But Minifpa seems to bring that back to life. For me, it's because what I was told and shared with is that everything that we need to survive was in that valley. Food, shelter, clothing, healing, uh, ways of, of knowing and believing um, that the land and the environment and the uh, animal nation uh, takes care of us in that valley. And I've heard stories about how we were created in the mountains and that we're the true, genuine people of the mountain. So that valley symbolizes a spirit that has been prayed to and worshipped. The Stony Dakota people have been in that valley for quite some time. A lot of the language keepers in our community are just now sharing uh, openly a lot of these places that are significant. So it's been pretty... uh, Pretty interesting for me to hear and see some of my community members bring forth this knowledge, which has been very empowering for me, because that's knowledge that is just now servicing, which is very exciting. The Canadian government interfered in different ways at various points in history in the naming of Indigenous peoples. From the renaming of places to the forced adoption of Christian names in residential schools, names have been deliberately used as a means of suppressing Indigenous identity. To help shed light on the experiences of Inuit, we spoke with Heather Igloliordi about the history surrounding Inuit names. 
I'm Dr. Heather Igluliukti. I'm an Inuk and Newfoundlander from Nunatsiavut. My family's from Hopedale. I grew up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And I'm currently at Concordia University, where I'm the University Research Chair in Circumpolar Indigenous Arts. You know, in this conversation, names are actually kind of right at the heart of truth-telling in so many different ways, because we've got these kinship groups, we've got these really tight family relationships, we've got, you know, very important identities invested in names, and then you've got the government that comes along and takes all those away, and, and then these kind of bumpy processes to sort of untangle ourselves from that. And that, of course, is, has been, even as Canadians think about, you know, the evolution of Canada itself, even the creation of Nunavut is a big change that has happened really in the last, what, 30 years, I guess, or so. Hey? Yeah, yeah. It's so wonderful to see all of the reclaiming of Inuit names for Inuit places all across the North. And we've certainly seen a lot of it. There's lots of places that were named after the Europeans, even the sort of pre-Inuit who lived in on this continent, the Dorset people. They're named after the Earl of Dorset, who was a like a, a prince in Europe who never came to Canada, like, you know, wore wore tights and poopy clothing, (laughs) you know, could not be any further away from, uh, from what we think of as the Dorset peoples now. And so it's, uh, it is, it's actually so much more appropriate. And you learn a lot about um, where it is that you are in the North based on the place names and like why things were named the way they are. Like Iqaluit, for example, means a place of many fish. Iqaluit is is one fish. The it means many, and you're like, oh, that's a good place to live. There's lots of fish there, <laughs> you know. Like, so there's there's a lot that you can learn when you start to uh, recover those names and to you know remove some of the names that are you know really kind of ridiculous when you <laughs> think about it. Since colonization of the Arctic began, settlers have shown a profound lack of understanding of the beauty and complexity of Inuit names. Before contact with settlers from Europe and elsewhere. Inuit family groups were pretty small. You didn't need to have a second name. You just needed a first name. And those names were really important. They were tied to, uh, you know, you were always named after someone. So you had namesakes. And those were really important uh, kinship relations that were all done through names. And so trying to, that that transition period to joining Canada has had all kinds of um, bumps in the road. Heather told us about the E-tag or disc identification system imposed on the Inuit. And because she's an art historian, we talked about it through the remarkable work of Inuk photographer Barry Pottle. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of contemporary Inuit artists who are really invested in uh, sharing their own truths and their community's truths and their, their people's truths. When I think about the exhibition Decolonize Me that I curated at the Ottawa Art Gallery in Ooh, was that 2011? <laughs> a decade ago now. And um, that show included a series of photographs from Barry Pottle that were all about the e-tag system. And they were really beautiful because they were photographs of the tags, which were these little leather discs. They had the, uh, the image of the crown stamped into one side. And then they on the back, they'd have uh, E or W and then a number for the region, which would mean Eastern or Western Arctic. Uh, and then a number for the region, for example, I think five was back in Ireland, and then a dash and then a number for the person. So like you, if you were the 628th person counted, then your number would be, you know, E5628. Beginning in 1941, the Canadian government issued ID tags with identifying numbers for every Inuk. A decision made without any Inuit consultation and showing total disregard for Inuit naming practices. 
And so Barry, as a, as a young sort of journalistic photographer, when he started out, he started noticing that people were either wearing the tags or he'd go to like Inuit cultural events. And um, he met a woman who had her number written on a t-shirt. Like she'd had a t-shirt made to show her number. And so he was like, what is, what is this going on here with this history? Because in Labrador, we didn't have that. We were left out of, um, cause we didn't join Confederation until 1949. And so, um, you know, he just became really interested in, in this history. And also as an Inuk, it was like, I don't know as much about this as I could, I think. And so he did this, um, this project that really tried to unite um, and focus on people's uh, feelings and, and their relationship to the tag numbers. So he asked each of his sitters, I think there's a series of, I think it's probably about 12 photographs. And he asked each of the Inuit to, um, think about how they felt about the tags as they um, as they posed for their photograph, and so you really do see a huge range of emotion on people's faces, from you know from anger and frustration and hurt, all the way to kind of a kind of a pride, you know, for having survived that, for being resilient, for um, having been known by that. Part of the motivation behind this naming program was for the Canadian government to show their effective sovereignty over the Arctic and its inhabitants because by the 1940s, Canadian control of the region had not yet been internationally recognized. I think that uh, maybe people would be surprised to know that if you go into any museum in the country and you find an Inuit sculpture that was made in the 50s or the 60s, maybe even later, it's probably more likely to have the E number carved into the bottom as a signature than it is to have the person's name, which is really just speaks to how prevalent it was. And so um, that's that's how widespread it was. That people were using it like to sign their name. They really did identify as their numbers because that's how um, that's how you would receive um, any kind of payments from the government. That's how you would enroll your kids in school. That's how you would, you know, that's how you were in the world. It's like a social insurance number, but instead of a card with your name on it, it was just a number. The e-tag system was discontinued in the early 1970s but the process of unraveling the legacies of this system continue to this day. And artists like Barry provide a space to grapple with these complicated histories. You know, when you think about your, your curatorial practice and your work within galleries and, and even your scholarly work, how do you see art uh, broadly being in service of or a contributor to or a tool for discussing these really important human rights that have been so infringed? Uh, I mean, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot in that question. It's, it's human rights, but it's also kind of the right to dignity, the right to be self-determining, to really get to uh, share your own story in the way on your own terms, <laughs> on your own grounds, which is, you know, it was kind of taken away from us for a little while. And so it's great that uh, I think of myself as a curator, as someone who tries to create a platform for contemporary artists to express themselves and tell whatever stories it is that they want to tell in the sort of in a way that is not mediated by the institution, but rather by the artists themselves. So that's really critical to me. To further think through the complexities between history and identity, we talked with acclaimed author Lawrence Hill. Hey, well, my friends and family members and students call me Larry, but my name is Lawrence Hill. I live in Hamilton, Ontario. I'm a writer, a novelist, a essay writer, memoir writer, screenplay writer, now a playwright too. 
I'm black. Uh, my parents were Americans. My father was an African-American uh, and my mother was a very engaged sort of kick-ass civil rights activist who was white. Larry's lineage is interwoven with the civil rights movement. Because my father, you know, an African-American immigrant to Canada who headed up the first human rights commission in the country in Ontario, he told me that I had an obligation when something wrong was going on. If I didn't stand up to oppose it, well, I was part of the problem. His most recent book, Beatrice and Croc Harry, is a fantasy children's story about a young girl who wakes up in a magical forest with no memory of who she is or how she got there. There's certainly a lot of parallels between um, what I saw in your book and, and, and then even what a lot of folks are, are encountering today in terms of answering some of these fundamental questions of who am I? Where do I come from? Uh, where am I going? I think most people with a heart, most people who are open, like to thinking about other people and trying to imagine their lives and show some empathy and so forth, are interested in the journey towards self-understanding and identity. And whether that identity is quite private and internalized or whether it's a, a public identity that's reinforced by the people around us. And of course, identity is so fluid and I guess it encompasses both those things and everything in between how we see ourselves and also how we are seen and accepted and part of communities all around us. And so I'm, I'm very interested in kind of the intersection of geography and identity too. But Beatrice wakes up in the forest and she knows nothing. She has no memory. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't even know her last name, and she doesn't even understand because she's alone with no other human beings, that she's black. And I guess in that moment, her blackness doesn't quote-unquote matter. It's because it doesn't really kick in with any tangible meaning yet. Uh, And I love the idea of giving this child who's had her memory erased through no fault of her own and has been isolated from the entire human world, giving her a chance to reconstruct and refine, reassemble the sort of the last pieces of her identity. But as much as this story is fantastical, full of talking crocodiles and rabbits, it's also a touching representation of how colonial violence has prevented whole peoples from being able to know their own history. And so Beatrice, um, like so many peoples, Indigenous and Black and others, you know, has to do it, has to make this huge effort asking herself this massive effort to correct what has happened to her. And she's on her own. She's got to do this on her own steam, and she has no people helping her. No, Larry, there's so many parallels with what we heard through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in so many different ways in regards to that, with, you know, these survivors exiting the residential school, um, having been pushed through this system of brutal forced assimilation. And having been renamed, having been uh, numbered as as you would a prisoner in a jail, essentially, uh, and having this profound just absence of identity other than the one that had been manufactured for them within the schools, uh, and then entering a society, of course, that, that wasn't really interested in knowing who they were as Indigenous peoples, of course. Um, so this this process of identity is is so central in in healing, I think. Um, and I suppose that's all contributing to maybe changing 
the idea of Canada and, and even arresting some of our own amnesia that we have at, at the collective level, uh, the, you know, the sense of knowingness and, and more importantly, unknowingness that we've all inherited through some form or another. Yes, there is a collective unknowingness and a collective, and I think sometimes, frankly, a willful amnesia. I think many Canadians find it convenient to not know about these things and, and they rather not know. And I guess every people's have profoundly different experiences and different origins. But I often like to meditate on the aspects of similarity uh, of experiences between different peoples. And one really interesting aspect of similarity between, you know, indigenous peoples and, and peoples of the African diaspora is in both cases, there was a willful attempt to exterminate a history and a memory and a possibility of even knowing. And you've just spoken about this with regard to, in particular, residential schools, which was, of course, one of many ways they try to stomp out pride and connection to culture and, and the proliferation and, and love of, of, of culture and, and identity, indigenous identity. And in the case of people who came in chains across the ocean as enslaved peoples and their descendants, there is also a total and absolute rupture from the past. It is physically impossible to celebrate one's history if you happen to be one of the people who were literally in chains and brought over the ocean as you know, quote-unquote first-generation enslaved peoples because they, they're not allowed to celebrate their past or to cite their prayers or to uh, speak their names or to have their names. But for their descendants, there is also a rupture and there is also the impossibility of really knowing, feeling, going to the place where your people were from, understanding in any kind of direct way that history and that, that part of yourself. And so there, I think there's a similarity. And I think those things bind us and, and help us understand each other. And so the healing is part of the journey towards self-discovery. And so the novel is about the possibilities of healing too. Okay, um, so Robina, if we could just start off with you introducing yourself, if that would be okay. I always struggle. How do you introduce yourself? We have, throughout our conversations for this podcast, made a deliberate effort to have all those we visit with introduce themselves so that they can share the parts of their identity that are important to who they are and make connections with those past, present, and future. So, Osiem Nasiyeyu Sisiem Nasokwing, Antha Quotsiyamat. So I've told you that um, I've started off by saying thank you um, to any um, elders, chiefs, council members that might be listening, um, all respected people, to my family and my friends. Um, thank you so much for listening. I've told you my name is Colt Siamat. Um, my English name is Rubina Thomas. I share both my um, traditional name and my English name with my grandmother, um, who was Lavina Wise. And there's a long story behind how Rubina and Lavina um, are a shared name. And um, my grandmother was the second youngest of Joe and Jenny Wise from Stanamo. Um, so I've told you that I'm Snanamo and Stolo ancestry, but I've also told you I'm Lyaxin and I'm Lyaxin through marriage. 
Um, I was married before the Indian Act changed, and so I automatically became a member of my husband's band. And I thank the Lekwungen and the Watsanic Mastimo for allowing us to live, learn, and love in their traditional territory. And said, Heitzapka, thank you all for, for listening today. And there is a relationship between the way Robina introduces herself and the responsibilities of truth-telling. You know, my name um, is Kultsiamat. Um, the root of that name is Kultsia. And Kultsia was my grandmother. And so Kultsia Mat is just tells the difference between my grandmother and me, that Mat. And so that tells a story about where I'm from, from being from Snanemo. And so those words, those names tell a story about who we are and where we're from. And when I introduced myself um, in my very, very broken Hulk Kaminam, I did that because when I got my name, my my old um, late auntie Helen Kamai from um, Lekwungen territory told me, you need to tell people who you are and where you're from. And, and I think about I think about our teachings, and I think about the power of names and words. And the reason I need to tell people is so on this podcast, I've told everyone, I'm Kultsiamat. My grandmother was Lavina Wise. I'm Lavina's granddaughter, and I'm a Lyaxon band member. If anyone questions anything that I've said, they have so many avenues now to go back and correct that. And that was one of the things about oral tradition. And that's one of the reasons we're told to introduce ourselves. Robina also explained the intimate ties between who we are and where we come from. And it's the power of those places. It's telling you my grandfather was oppressed from Stalo territory. It's telling you my grandfather, my grandmother is a wise from Snanemo territory. It's telling you I'm a Thomas from Lyaxon. There is so many ways for you to find out who I am and where I'm from. There's so many ways to check if I've if I've shared any mistruths, if I've if I've dropped a name that I shouldn't drop, or if I've, you know, said something wrong. And and I think about I think about the responsibility. And so when you take away our names and you take away the opportunities to share those stories. You take away, with that, all of the responsibility that those names carry as well. At the time of our conversation, news had just broken that the provincial government had refused to register the name of a baby due to the provincial database system being unable to handle Kwakwala lettering. And I just think about how hard that must be. When you name a child and now you can't name them that. And my heart kind of dropped because we just launched the DRIPA action plan. We just read about the commitments on behalf of the province to the rights of Indigenous people. And yet think that a basic right would be to name our children their names, the rightful names that they have. And so I celebrated the day that, that the action plan was launched thinking about the possibility. And then two weeks later, my heart hits the ground, thinking about the roadblocks. And and I thought about that baby, and I thought about how we need to call that baby whatever that name is. 
And we need to celebrate that name loudly. And I think, you know, what was what is made so clear when we when we talk about a story like that is is how there are just these two fundamentally different stories still being told in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this there's the story of the colonizers and then the story of indigenous peoples. And it seems like the hard and complicated work is is one making the stories of Indigenous peoples more well-known, and then two, um, helping untangle ourselves from these mistruths that mask understanding of where we live and our responsibilities and, and the places that we're fortunate to call home. You think about Leaxon and trying to rename our island Leaxon. There's a creation story that tells us how the Leaxon people came to be. And so by it be called Valdez Island, it completely takes away from our creation story because, you know, there was a Douglas fir and when it, when it fell, it fell onto Leaxon. It didn't fall onto Valdez. And so right away we have two different stories about how that island came to be and how the Leaxon people came to be. And so I, I, there's... It's, it's so important. Words matter. Names matter. I myself have looked really hard at family names, both past and present, trying to reassemble who I am as a Métis person and how my own family fits into the broad histories of colonization and displacement within Canada. As somebody with both settler and Métis ancestry, Understanding the interplay between these histories and the responsibilities that come along with these realities, I feel, is vital. For my own family history, I see these names as vital lines of inquiry. Questions intended to help answer four other fundamental questions so often asked by former Commissioner Murray Sinclair. Those questions being, where do I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Exploring names can help us address these questions, these questions of identity. And in the case of place names in Canada, exploring these same questions can help reveal the complex and often violent processes of colonization. Where do the place names of Canada come from? Who are they? Why are they here? And how does this tie into our collective and shared futures? The direct tie between place names and human rights is a certain part of our future. Legislation in both Canada and here in British Columbia now recognizes the vital link between the transmission of knowledge to future generations and the role names play in this. In fact, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples clearly states that Indigenous peoples have the right to revitalize, use, develop, and transmit to future generations their histories, languages, oral traditions, philosophies, writing systems, and literatures, and most importantly, to designate and retain their own names for communities, places, and persons. On the other side of it, states like Canada, provinces, municipalities, are supposed to take the effective measures to ensure that these rights are protected and to ensure that all of society has the opportunity to better understand these lands in which we live. 
The future of Canada is one wherein Indigenous place names will re-emerge. This is an exciting future. This podcast was created through the direct teamwork of an incredible group of people. It was written and produced by Karina Greenwood and myself, editing and consulting by Cassidy Vilburn Barakas, mixing and mastering by Matthias Leitch, and music by myself, Rymeran. Special thanks to the UVic Libraries team that assisted in countless ways on this production. Additional audio content from CBC News. Marci to our guests, Daryl Kootney, Heather Igloliordi, Lawrence Hill, and Robina Thomas. Tapwewen is made possible through the University of Victoria's Strategic Framework Impact Fund and with the direct support from UVic Libraries and CFUV Radio. This podcast was created in unceded Lekwungen and Wasanic territories. <laughs>